This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Ernie Acorsi. You're listening to the iTest for Truth. Welcome to the first day of June and the first of this week's I Test for Two podcast. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. We're both Hall of Fame voters and joined this week, as we always are, by our Hall of Fame producer, Ian Glendon, who, by the way, Ira, subbed for you last week and did so well that we're thinking of calling this the I Test for Three. <laughs> I'm very proud of our boy, Ian. He showed off his versatility. And keep up the good work, Mr. G. You know, Ira, only you would appreciate this. And I saw the eye test for three. Let's see, three eyes. That reminds me of an episode from the Twilight Zone. Michael and Ian are too young to remember this. But <laughs> do you remember a Twilight Zone called Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And the guy at the bar had a third eye in the middle of his forehead. <laughs> Clark, I, Clark I, I can't keep up with you with these uh, uh, old TV shows. Remember the Outer Limits, Clark? Oh, yeah, the sure. Outer yeah, oh, yeah, I sure do. Oh, yeah. Watch the Outer Limits. I loved it. Actually, I loved it. Um, okay, uh, speaking of, you know, third eyes and things a little bit unusual, you guys are from Tampa. Ian lives in St. Petersburg. Ira's in Tampa. Ira, or Ian, please tell me what the heck is going on with the Tampa Bay Lightning. I'm not talking about on the ice. I'm talking about on, off the ice. Last week, that story about them threatening to oust an 11-year-old kid and his father because they were wearing what? Florida Panthers jerseys. Apparently, there's a rule there that you can't wear visiting jerseys um, from the opposing team in some of the luxury boxes or suites. goes back to 2015, I think, a Rangers game or something. You can't wear opposing jerseys? All right, what's that all about? This is a relic from past experience, Clark, the days when the lightning sucked and everybody from Detroit and Chicago and New York would fill the building when they were coming in to play the Lightning. But those days are over, Clark. They've built yep. up a very strong fan base. So they got to get rid of this old thing where you can't come in with an old, uh, with an opposing jersey. Uh, that That's something from 10 years ago, Clark. It, it doesn't apply anymore. Yeah, and I know they revoked the policy. But Ian, you show I, up with the Bruins jersey, you're gone. Well, I, I will say this, and maybe I am a little bit biased as a Bruins fan, but uh, – I think it sort of speaks to the Tampa Bay Lightning's insecurity that they don't want other fans. That, that's just me. You know, again, maybe I'm a little bit biased but uh, <laughs> as a Bruins fan. But it also reminds me of a more uh, modern television show. Well, sort of modern now. But Seinfeld, where Elaine Bennis wore the Orioles cap and got thrown out. So <laughs> bring it back to at least the 20th century. All right. Well, uh, speaking of insecurity, uh, Ian, how insecure do you think Leafs fans are today. I watched the Habs and the Leafs last night, and I'm a diehard Habs fan. Carey Price stood on his head again. 
the Leafs lost again, and they're zero and eight now in potential playoff series winning games dating back to 2004. Oh my it's goodness. it's just it's just another May for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They have not won a playoff series since I was a senior in high school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right. What was going on when you were a senior in high school? You know, Clark, Clark, quick story. <laughs> uh, when I was at the Tribune, uh, our columnist, Martin Fennelly, who was outstanding. Um, Clark, true story. About 15 years ago, Maple Leafs come in uh, to Amelie Arena, you know, a December game. And Martin had been planning this. And he writes a column, Clark, the day of the game, saying, you Toronto people think to invent hockey. You haven't done squat. You are the most overrated fan base in the world. This is the most overrated team in the world. And here comes all the Toronto riders to the morning skate. And, they, uh, and they're looking at their Tampa Trib. And here's Fennelly letting them have it. They are not used to that kind of stuff in Toronto. Can you imagine what's going on at the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun this morning, Clark? I'd like to know what's going on in that front office, boy. Some hard decisions to make. They have an, such a talented team, vastly more talented than the Canadians. One problem, they don't have carry price, and that, that was the difference. Um, I want to get back to something that happened last week, and this speaks more to football now than hockey. We'll move off of hockey, but Adam Vinatieri, he's retiring. He announced his retirement. I, I saw where Bill Belichick said he's the greatest kicker of all time. Maybe, possibly, maybe, probably and that he'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer. That I'm not so sure about, because when you look at the class he's going to be inducted with, or the class, let's put it another way, the class that he's eligible with, it's the class of 2025. Now in that class, you've got Luke Keekley, Eli Manning, Travis Frederick, Marshall Yonda, and Eric Weddle. Plus he's a kicker, and we know how difficult it is to get kickers in, especially first ballot, doesn't happen. So what do you think the chances are here, Ira? He's not a kicker. He's Adam Vinatieri. And I think that transcends the position. And unlike Morton Anderson, Clark, he's not going to have to wait. I think Adam Vinatieri goes in. He's more modern than Morton Anderson. He will appeal more to the younger voters. And I don't have a problem if he gets in first time around. I don't have a problem. Sounds like he already has your vote, Ira. Well, he's right behind Rondé Barber. Barber's first, Vinatieri second. <laughs> because Rondé Barber played well, in Tampa. That's right. Well, I mentioned Travis Frederick. He's a three-time All-Pro. Of course, he played with Dallas. So I will segue into our guest today, and that's the beat reporter for the Dallas Morning News. So when I first met when he was covering the Chargers in San Diego. Remember those days, Howard, when the Chargers played in San Diego? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, he's followed, he's followed you around a little bit, Clark. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, except I didn't go to Las Vegas. But I'm talking about Michael Gelkin, good friend of ours and an outstanding reporter. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. And since we mentioned the Cowboys, I think the first question that we would like to get to is Dak Prescott. Um, he was off to a great start last year. I think it was sort of a history-making start for him before he got hurt. Can you bring us up to date as to what's going on with him? I think he missed all but five games last year, but what's going on with him and, and what your expectations are for him and this team this season? Sure, thanks again for having me. It's been a while since we saw Dak Prescott, of course, compete in a game since that October open ankle fracture, just a nasty season ending injury. He suffered Had two ankle surgeries thereafter, one, that night, the other one in December to provide additional stability to the joint. 
uh, here in the spring, as we talk today, Cowboys are really, really encouraged with what they see from Dak Prescott on the field. I mean, really off the field, he checks all the boxes. If you're curious as to what level of optimism the Cowboys have in Dak Prescott's recovery, just look at the fact that he chose to rehab at the facility. So there were no surprises each day. He's working with the team's athletic training staff. He works with them and then he gets paid that huge contract. And so that contract speaks volumes more than anything that I could say about the Cowboys comfort level with Dak Prescott post ankle injury. We saw him on the field in an early OTA practice uh, physically, you know, you see him run on, while he's on the move. You see him being just about a full participant and everything. Uh, you can see why the Cowboys are so encouraged. Now, are there going to be some little indicators that he's not, you know, that he's coming off this major injury? Yes, there are. Uh, you know, instead of 11-on-11, 11 11, they kind of have like 11-on-7 where there is no defensive line when Dak Prescott's on the field. So there's no accidental collisions. They're allowing Dak to get back into a rhythm of things. Uh, he's still working through, I think, some of the mechanics of his footwork and those sorts of things, small details. But for a guy who has this much time still before training camp or before the season opener against the Bucks, against against that Tampa Bay team that Ira loves uh, <laughs> talking about, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're going to see over the course of time, I'm sure, uh, Prescott continue to develop and continue to gain uh, that rhythm that we're accustomed to him seeing come by week one. Michael, have you actually been able to see him work out or has the media actually been able to see him work out? And if not, when will you get your first glimpse? First glimpse was in late May. There was a second OTA practice. The team's going to have eight OTAs. We were invited to the second one and then uh, 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 of those eight. And then there's going to be another OTA practice, uh, which we'll be able to see Prescott ourselves. Could you tell anything from that? I think just the... He's, he's pretty much doing it all. Um, he, he really looks like himself. And it wasn't for that 11-on-7 drill where they seem to be limiting his exposure to things. Um, I wouldn't have been able to really told you that he's coming off of, of a major injury. I mean, if you really try to nitpick his, you know, performance, I guess, from one May practice where attendance is voluntary, where Mario Cooper wasn't on the field, yeah, there was like one ball where he attempted to, you know, I don't know if you call it, want to call it a force, you know, you kind of forced the ball into CeeDee Lamb over the middle and Deontay Burton, a cornerback, picked it off. And then soon thereafter, there was a, a pass uh, in a flat that cornerback Reggie Robinson was able to break up. And so it wasn't like he lit up things uh, inside the Ford Center. But again, it's May. I don't know if I would have expected him to anyway, uh, just given where we are in the offseason. Mike, I don't know if you agree with me, but... 90, 95% of my questions about the Cowboys are on the defensive side, Mike. Uh, the first six picks, draft picks, were on defense, Mike. Uh, and for good reason. They stunk against the run last year. They had 10 interceptions, 34 touchdown passes. Only Detroit gave up more touchdowns. Mike, can you imagine saying that about a Cowboys team? So, Mike, 2019, the defense wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It was okay. Uh, what happened was, uh, you know, did Rod Marinelli's uh, departure, uh, anything, uh, what the heck happened to the Cowboy defense? It's a great question. I think 95% of the Cowboys questions too are on the defensive side of the ball. Um, this team, this organization has a history under Jerry Jones to invest on offense. And so I think the conversation about the Cowboys defense always should point 
to the owner on down, which is to say this is an owner who's very business-minded. Uh, a lot of offensive players sell jerseys. A lot of offensive players fill seats. And Jerry Jones thinks about those things more than many do. And so uh, look at the guy whose impulse is to draft Johnny Menzel over, I think, a guy that you guys will be having conversations with as a future Hall of Famer and Zach Martin. Team ultimately did take Zach Martin, but that was despite Jerry Jones wanting the more flashy Johnny Menzel. And so when you have that sort of a philosophy, I think it's natural that the defense will end up being a little bit more understocked relative to the offense. That's been the case as specifically relevant to what we're seeing of late. Uh, the Cowboys, you know, they hired Mike McCarthy. Uh, he hires Mike Nolan to be his defensive coordinator. Some had questions about that hire before the pandemic really hit the NFL and hit America in, in March. It was declared as such. But I think that any questions you had about Mike Nolan became exacerbated when it was time to do virtual learning. And he and the Cowboys defensive staff, I think, really struggled with that. Um, they had a defensive line coach, uh, Jim Tom Sula, who, who did not pan out here. They had a secondary coach who had never coached in the NFL before, and Maurice Wiss. Uh, he since has returned to the college ranks. So he was one and done in the NFL. He's doing quite well for himself in college, but nonetheless uh, was not a fit at all here in Dallas. And so if you want to be a believer that the Cowboys are on the right track defensively, you point to those first six picks that they made on defense in the draft, uh, including the, their, their, their top pick, Micah Parsons, linebacker out of Penn State. Uh, you point to some natural development from some of the youth, such as Trayvon Diggs, a cornerback uh, who was a second round pick the previous year. Uh, you point to, I think, well, first and foremost, Dan Quinn, uh, a big hire in the Cowboys' minds, uh, being able to uh, pick him up after the Atlanta Falcons uh, fired in midseason. Uh, and they also have an extremely experienced uh, defensive backs coach now in Joe Witt Jr. He was someone who coached under McCarthy for 10 years in Green Bay. So a lot more comfortable there. Dan Quinn's really hands-on with the D-line. You got Witt on the secondary. Uh, and overall, the Cowboys feel like they're in a lot better standing to handle these virtual meetings in the spring. Uh, plus, now they're on the field with their players uh, than they were last year. Mike, there could be several new starters on defense, including some rookies, Mike, if they're as good as uh, anticipated. So the boys open in Tampa, Mike, and, and then they got to play the Chargers. And Justin Herbert's waiting for him. And, you know, he's, he's going to do nothing but get better. And he was fantastic as a rookie. Um, that's not, that's not a, a great start for a, a, a new Dallas defense that might uh, still be learning its way, Mike. Yeah, we're going to find out quickly how or where, where the Cowboys are defensively. Those first two weeks, uh, we'll know exactly where they stand. And where they stand in September isn't necessarily where they stand in December or January. And so we'll obviously uh, be mindful of the ability of a group to grow together over the course of a year. But nonetheless, uh, those two games uh, talk about a litmus test. Uh, you know, I, I've, there's one thing I think I've learned covering the NFL, and, and Clark can attest to how long I've been doing it. I was 24 when – I was too young to rent a rental car at the <laughs> meeting. So he was driving me around Florida, uh, like literally driving me around. We would, we would show up to events together. We would leave events together. It was like I was married. Um, and so uh, the one thing I've learned over these 10 years uh, since that was the case is it's often a mistake to pin your hopes of improvement to a rookie class, which is 
it, to say that you say drafted a cornerback on the second day of the draft, that's not synonymous with you address your need at corner. Cause that would be asking a lot of a rookie. And so Kelvin Joseph, you know, the Cowboys drafted him in the second round. Well, he's played 15 games in college, 15 uh, between uh, I believe it was Florida State, LSU, or two, two, it was Kentucky and LSU, um, and, and he transferred, and uh, you know, just uh, with some off the field concerns that the Cowboys themselves are, are well versed in, and, and, and some around the league wonder what exactly Joseph can give the Cowboys in, in year one. And so, uh, with that's just one example, but again, an indicator that we don't know, even though the Cowboys have finally thrown some resources at their defense. Uh, whether or not it's too little too late for the 2021 team, despite their coaching changes. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. We're with Michael Gelkin of the Dallas Morning News here on the I Test for Two podcast. And Ira, we go so far back that when I was chauffeuring him around Florida, and I think it was the breakers we were staying at, but when I'm chauffeuring him around, he's going, um, so we take a right here, we take a left here. I said, well, I think I know how to get there, but let me just see. I, I think I take a, yeah, do I take a right? He goes, yeah. And he's giving me directions from his cell phone. And I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, oh, you just plug this in the cell phone. I said, what? He goes, yeah, he get the directions from cell phones. So I went, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> no, no. He goes, welcome to the 21st century. You know, That was the last time I chauffeured him. <laughs> anyway, uh, Michael, I want to ask you a question about going back to uh, Dak Prescott, because you mentioned the opening game of the season against Tampa. Seems to me there's a lot of pressure, as you mentioned, on the defense, but certainly there's going to be a lot of pressure on him as well. First game back, you're going against the defending Super Bowl champions, and you happen to be going against Tom Brady. Um, there's pressure there, but there's also, it seems to me, pressure from what you referred to earlier, and that's the contract he signed in the offseason. And according to Forbes magazine, it makes him the highest paid player in the NFL and the fourth highest paid athlete in the world. Uh, two of those above him are soccer players. There's no football player ahead of him. So there's pressure for that aspect, too. Um, how much do you think this guy's under this year? coming back a from the injury B opening up against Brady and the Bucks, and then C trying to live up to that contract that everybody is going to dissect. It is immense. The pressure It is immense. It would be immense on any team. I think it's probably particularly immense when you're the Dallas Cowboys quarterback, right. And tails, whether you do well or you do poorly or the team does well or does poorly, you're going to be talked about. There's going to be a camera. There's going to be attention. There's going to be, you know, Skip Bayless and that whole thing. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. But <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be that, and, and Dak's trying to make a impact off the field too with you know mental health, and he takes up a lot of of of, of everything that include that, that encompasses. Um, I think a key thing for Dak, we talk about the pressure that he's in, under, is well the pressure that he may or may not be under because the Cowboys, you know they don't just have Dak Prescott making a comeback on offense. He also have their left tackle, Tyron Smith, another top, top guy uh, over the course of his career. Uh, he missed all but two games in 2020 with a neck injury. He underwent surgery, was out for the season. Right tackle, Lyle Collins, arguably had a better season in 2019 than Tyron Smith did. A real mauler in the run game and also improving in pass protection. He missed the entire season with a hip injury under with surgery on our we didn't see him so uh, the Cowboys as they are encouraged again with Dak Prescott and how he's looked this spring and how he's recovered 
also extremely encouraged they are with where Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins are. So for all the pressure that Dak Prescott is no doubt in, and it's, it's, it's no doubt perceptible. I mean, it's, there's a good chance, like was the case last year and recently, even before, that you know, the Cowboys are going to have to put up 30 points in order to have a chance to win. Anytime that is the reality for your offense and for your quarterback, uh, that alone is, is enough. Uh, but when we, we have Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins, if those two guys can stay healthy, as, long, as well as Zach Martin in several games, and he wasn't a full participant when I saw him in OTAs last week. Um, that that if those guys can stay healthy uh, for all the pressure Dak's under, uh, that will relieve a lot of it and maybe arguably the most critical area. Yeah, and speaking of pressure and speaking of Tom Brady, I saw something last week that interested me and is from Hall of Famer Michael Irvin. And he said that the Cowboys have the closest thing to Tom Brady and Dak Prescott. What does he mean? I don't know. <laughs> Tom Brady's got seven Super Bowl rings. I think he was talking about work ethic, you know, uh, you know, first one in the building, last one to go out, um, that sort of thing. But when I heard that, I went, the closest thing to Tom Brady, wow. Um, that, that puts yeah. a lot on a guy's shoulders, too. Yeah, my mind went to, you know, the two players on the field, and to me, they're such different players as quarterbacks. I think, you know, things that make Tom Brady great are really unique to him. I mean, he's got a mastery of micro-movements in the pocket. Right. The way that maybe, you know, he doesn't have Dak's athleticism when it comes to the 40-yard dash, but his ability to evade pressure while keeping his eyes downfield by just making the slightest of movements has been one of the greatest joys, I think, for us to be covering football in the period at which we are covering it is because we get to see that guy operate like he does. And I think, you know, there's a he keeps the company of no one when it comes to, to that and, and, and his quick release and his accuracy, all that. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't compare Dak to, to Tom Brady. I don't think that's fair to either one of them. Um, but that being said, I have covered a number of quarterbacks over the course of my career. Uh, Philip Rivers, Derek Carr, predominantly before I joined the Cowboys beat. And I'm grateful for that experience because it, it gives me something of a, uh, you know, I, I, I'll be able to compare what I'm seeing in, in Dallas to what might exist elsewhere. And that perspective makes me appreciate you know, as great as, you know, you know, some of those, those quarterbacks that I mentioned are in, in so many areas. And I mean, Philip Rivers is an incredible, uh, you know, guy. Uh, and Derek's got some, some really strong, strong traits. But the way that Dak can just – the way that he can get a whole locker room to gravitate around him. And I'm not just talking the young guys or the old guys. I mean, it's everybody. And it's throughout the building. Um, it's, it's special. You know, one, one thing I, I don't know if you guys are baseball guys, but, you know, they, they, they give guys tools. You know, the guy's got 50 raw, 50 raw power. He's got 50 speed. He's got this arm. You can do that. I think Dak Prescott's got an 80 leadership. Uh, I think it's just off the charts, the way people at the star respond to him, people outside. Uh, he just got this presence about him and the way he works, the way he approaches uh, his craft, the way he approaches life are all things that uh, those around him, uh, no matter they are a scene to really, really respond to. So if that's where the comparison is between Dak and, and, and Tom Brady, uh, I certainly understand. And, and even some, I got a question about the franchise. And as, as I looked at this, Mike, I, I just couldn't believe it. Now you live it every day, but Mike, since 97, I mean, that's almost a quarter of a century of football. Uh, these guys have won three playoff games, Michael. They've never gotten <laughs> past the division round. 
I think all three were as a wild card team. Um, Mike, if their name wasn't the Cowboys, we, we could be talking about the Detroit Lions uh, over here. Uh, it's quite remarkable. So, Mike, I, I always say when a team struggles over a long period of time, a franchise, you, you got to look at the top. You, you got to look at the owner. So, Mike, you know, looking at Jerry, you know, and I can't imagine covering him because I got the Glazers here and they don't talk. Mike, <laughs> they don't talk. And, and, and you got to go to talk to Jerry Jones after every game, home and away. Um, how much responsibility ultimately, Mike, falls on Jerry Jones for this, you know, 20-year uh, drought that, that's going on in Dallas? I think all of it. Um, and, you know, I always – I feel more comfortable talking about an extended playoff drought in relation to the owner. You know, I think it would be unfair to talk about it with really any member of the Cowboys locker room, any active member. You know, I don't think Dak Prescott is responsible for the failings that happened when he was 12 years old. Um, but when we're talking Jerry Jones, we're talking about the way that this roster is constructed. You know, I, I lean on, you know, I don't have the foundation of being able to have covered, you know, Cowboys teams in the past. I've never met Tony Romo. I haven't had a conversation with Troy Aikman. Um, I, I don't really uh, have that ability, but I have tried to speak to those who do. You know, I've tried to speak to the Rick Dawson's of the world and, and try to really educate myself uh, in this history of the Cowboys, uh, you know, when they're up top and, and we're kind of where they have been for the past couple of decades, which is, which is not there. And I, I do think the way that the roster has been constructed where it is a bit of a business, it's, 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 it's a marketing instrument. It's, it's excitement. It's, it's offense, it's offense and it's offense. And they're not really invested much in the defense. I think it's all part of it. Some of it though does seem to be luck. You know, I, again, I've covered the chargers who you could argue had some of the most talented teams in the NFL for a period of time. And, and they didn't get there. They didn't make it to the Super Bowl. Maybe you want to pin that on Dean Spanos. You, you could do that. But I think ultimately there is a, a window that certain teams have. And because it's a sport where it's balls oblong, it's a sport where, like all other sports, things can happen. Um, injuries can happen. Uh, you know, different things where guys, teams get hot at the right time. There can be a call that can sway a game. And certainly the Cowboys have had their, uh, you know, they have a list of calls that they remember. Uh, you know, did you guys catch it? Did he not? You know, all that. Um, and so, you know, those, those moments haven't gone the Cowboys way. And so, uh, you know, you can just say some of that's just sports or some of it's Jerry Jones, whatever it is. Uh, it's palpable that the, the Cowboys have fallen well short. And despite them falling short, despite other teams being more relevant than them, the uh, Cowboys are probably still the most talked about team in the NFL. And again, that's uh, if you want to criticize Jerry Jones and, and say that he's responsible for, you know, the Cowboys not having gone over the hump over these past couple decades. Well, you also have to give credit Jerry Jones for being probably as relevant as any uh, having the Cowboys as relevant as any sports franchise, perhaps in the world. Uh, you know, when they're, when they're 10 and six, they're talked about like, 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 you know, as, as few are. And when they're six and 10, they're still talked about like few are. I think it's nauseating for fans of other teams, but again, that's, that's what the Cowboys are. And that's what Jerry Jones has built. Mike, I got one more for you. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Mike, um, I think the team's lost a, a little bit of its offensive identity in this respect, Mike, and tell me how much of a part of this is, is playing lousy defense. But, you know, Ezekiel Elliott used to be the fulcrum of, of this offense. And, and, Mike, he averaged 16 carries, 65 yards, played 15 games. Um, if he's more part of the offense, 
Mike, uh, that, that would help a young defense, you know, stay fresh and off the field. And so, Mike, my question is, is you know, don't they have to, I mean, Elliot's 25, 26 years old. It's not like the guy's beaten into the ground. And sort of what, what is the offensive plan? Don't they need uh, to get more of that offensive balance? Because I think Mike Dak was averaging 44 pass attempts in those first five games. And how much of a reflection of that was the score at the time and and how much of it is getting away from Ezekiel Elliott? It was score largely. It was game flow. I think the Cowboys would love, I think as any team would, but they would love to have the ability to be in their four-minute offense late in games. You know, you're up by a score or two. Everyone in the stadium knows you're going to run. doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyway. You're going to have to stop us. That attitude is something that the Cowboys, in theory, are built to execute. You know, they do have the high, you know, one of the highest paid offensive lines in the NFL. You know, they lost Travis Frederick uh, to retirement, uh, surprise to them, uh, in March of 2020. Um, but, oh, you know, but you look at his contract, which still counted against their books. Uh, you look at the left tackle, Tyron Smith, you look at the right guard, Zach Martin, you look at the right tackle, Lyle Collins, who was fresh off an extension himself, uh, you know, a year removed from it. Uh, that's a lot of investment on your offensive line. As long as Dak, with Ezekiel Elliott, you know, being at the time going into the season last year, the second highest paid running back in the NFL to Christian McCaffrey. And so I think the Cowboys want still to be that where they can have balance, they can run the football, but we are no doubt seeing a pivot of sorts where they are also built, and I would say more built, to throw in the football. You, you, you would have a hard time showing me a Another team in the NFL that is better equipped to run 11 personnel. So one running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. Those three wide receivers for the Cowboys, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, and C.D. Lamb, is as good, in my view, as you can get. And so when you have that dynamic of a trio at wide receiver, you, you better throw the football. And Zeke Elliott was extremely efficient. I want to say it was – north of 5.5, 5.6 yards per carry in 2019, running the ball when the Cowboys were in 11 personnel. So I think if you're the Cowboys, you believe that you can still be effective in a grouping that really highlights your passing game, really highlights Dak Prescott and your receiver core. But uh, they, they ultimately just need to find a way to get in, themselves into better game situations so that they can rely on Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard and, and do more in the running game than, than they did last year. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Michael, and Ari, I'm glad you mentioned that because we are old enough to remember Tony Romo and to have covered him when he was playing there. And in his last year, next to last year, I've forgotten what next to last year, Ira, uh, he had success because DeMarco Murray ran for like 1,500 yards or whatever it was, and it took the pressure off of him. So they protected him with the offensive line and with DeMarco Murray. And then Zeke Elliott came in there, and they had some success too. I think the more they get away from him, the less chance they do have for success. However, as you pointed out, they just gave the quarterback a big contract. You've got weapons on the outside. It's going to be some pressure on him there. We talked about earlier the pressure, but pressure to get the ball to those guys. So I think there has to be some kind of happy balance. And again, Ira, we saw that with Tampa last year with Brady. I mean, when the running backs were effective, they were effective. When the defense was effective, they were effective and they got to the top. So I, I, I sure hope that happens in Dallas. Michael, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I guess you're going to see him in Tampa in September, right? Absolutely. The Bucks will uh, raise the banners. The cannons will be going off because uh, Brady might go for 450. Sorry, Mike. 
as long as I make deadline, I'm happy either way. Whatever, whatever. Michael, no, as long as you can get Ari to take you to Burn Steakhouse the night before, you're golden. <laughs> Mike, give me directions. Uh, Mike, just give me directions through your phone. We'll be good. I got my we'll phone. Good. We're good to go. <laughs> Michael Gelkin, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. That was Michael Gelkin of the Dallas Morning News, beat writer for the Cowboys. And Ira, I think he's absolutely right about the pressure on Dak Prescott. I think he's enormous. And, 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 and Clark, you know this business as well as anybody. When you're the beat writer for the Dallas Morning News, there's pressure on you. Everybody's reading you, Clark. Yeah, that's there's, right. a little, there's a little pressure on Mike Gelkin, too. Yeah, and when you're the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, there's more pressure than there would be on the quarterback in Las Vegas where he covered them or in San Diego slash L.A. where he covered the Chargers. Anyway, that's going to do it for today. Join us tomorrow because we have a special guest for just this time of year. Now, I do have one question. Are you going to be joining us tomorrow or are you going back to Daytona? What's the deal? Oh, you got me. I, I, I'm going forward, I'm, I'm the man. I'm the man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this podcast doesn't stop, Clark. It doesn't it's like, stop. <laughs> it's like the Buck offense. It doesn't stop. Doesn't stop. And you know what? There is a reason to join us tomorrow. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.